I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everyone, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we expand the symbolism of scripture into a fuller picture of life lived in accordance with the Bible. After the last two weeks of focusing on the priesthood and the things around the priesthood, this week we are back in the tabernacle, this tent that God commanded to be built as a place for him to dwell in the midst of his people. And we've discovered throughout that the instructions given for this tent contain within them symbols of great importance. These symbols describe for us some very real truths that teach us many things that are revealed later in scripture in much greater detail. And these patterns reveal to us what a relationship with the God of creation looks like in all ages, whether in the age of the tabernacle itself with its tent and its items and its garments and services, or in the age of the temple where the dwelling place of God rests in one central location in a building of stone, or even in the current messianic age in which we now live, with God dwelling in the living stones of human beings who have joined themselves to his Son. But these instructions are not limited to only the past and the present. They contain instructions for future ages as well. They describe the hope that we look forward to, the hope of salvation and the hope of the kingdom of God on earth, the hope of the presence of God descending from heaven to dwell with men on earth, the return of the earth to the state of the Garden of Eden from the beginning. And as we examine these truths, we must always keep in mind that this is the entire point of the book of Exodus. It is a revelation of Hashem to mankind. And this revelation begins with who Hashem is to the world at large. It identifies who are his people and his base qualities as the God who hears the cries of his people and knows their afflictions and remembers the covenant that he made. He is the God of creation and justice, and he is a God who makes distinction between peoples, those who are his and those who are not. And the line of those who are his and who are not is one that is permeable. There are those who are allowed in who do not belong according to human levels of distinction, such as race or honor or status or wealth. And there are those who will be cast out, who humans would count as the greatest. I'm thinking of Korah right now, and the 251st born that we'll read of in number 16, and that first generation who all passed away in the wilderness. And it's revealed in this book that the distinction that is made is based on the blood of the Lamb alone, and then in continued faith in Hashem and His power to save. And that's just the first 12 chapters of Exodus, and that is only a sample of the revelations contained within. From there, we begin to learn about how Hashem leads and cares for those who He has delivered, how He will provide physical needs, how He will protect from enemies, how He will test the motives and faith of His people, and in the end, how He will give instructions for relationship with Him and with each other. And the foundation for these instructions is one thing and one thing alone, love love for him 
and love for each other. And then come these blueprints, the instructions for the tabernacle that more often than not get skipped over by many of us. But these instructions have revealed many deep truths for us so far. They've described patterns of approach, the pattern of God's approach to men and the pattern of man's approach to God. It's revealed the honor that Hashem has bestowed upon his people and the righteousness that can only be found in him, and the role of the priest that we've all been called to in this age. Exodus is so full of the character of Hashem from one end to the other, and we have been called into relationship with him, we who are but dust and wind. But there is one truth about a relationship that must be recognized. Relationships require communication. A relationship without any kind of communication is not a relationship. In fact, communication could be considered to be the most essential part of a relationship. And so while we have seen the fact that God wants to be in relationship, and we've seen his expectations for actions in our relationship, and we have seen the truth of the gifts that he bestows due to our relationship, it's not up until now that we get the opportunity to discuss just how we are to communicate in this relationship. Because we must communicate, or there's no relationship. So let's read this week's Parsha and then discuss the underlying topic that is revealed in this item of the altar of incense, and the pattern of prayer that's revealed within the tabernacle itself. Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And you shall make an altar to burn incense on. Make it of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide. It is a square, and two cubits high, its horns of the same. And you shall overlay its top with its sides all around, and its horns with clean gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. And make two gold rings for it, under the molding on both its sides. Make them on its two sides, and they shall be holders for the poles to lift it with. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil, that is, before the ark of the witness, before the lid of atonement, that is, over the witness, where I am to meet with you. And Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense, morning by morning. As he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps between the evenings, he shall burn incense on it, a continual incense before Hashem throughout your generations. Do not offer strange incense on it, or an ascending offering, or a grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he makes atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to Hashem. So it has long been recognized that the altar of incense seems to be a bit out of place in the instructions of the tabernacle. This altar is one that appears in the holy place, and as we read last week, it is to be situated the farthest back in the structure, just before the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. It's situated in the same room as the menorah, that seven-branched lampstand, and the table of the bread of the presence. And yet the instructions for this article are not given at the same time as those other items within the tabernacle. In fact, if we examine the seven parts of the instructions given between Exodus 25 and the end of 31, the instructions given to Moses while on the mountain that first time that I spoke of last week, each of these sections beginning with, And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, We discover that the altar of incense is the very final part of this first section. This is the piece that this entire section of instructions, which we've been reading for the last month, ends with. The lone altar of incense, the symbol of communication with Hashem, this item which is a visible representation of our words ascending before the Father, 
our sole means of communication with Hashem. You see, the symbol is only called out very few times in Scripture as the symbol that it is. But when it is said, it is stated very clearly. Psalm 141, 1-2 says, Hashem, I have cried out to you. Hasten to me and give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be prepared before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Or Revelation 5, 8. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the holy ones. Or Revelation 8, 3-4. And another messenger came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, that he should offer it with the prayers of all of the holy ones upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the holy ones went up before God from the hand of the messenger. And that's it. These are the only times of scripture that the symbol is explicitly called out, but it is not the only times that we see the correlation that is in the text. Because the symbol is something that was understood intrinsically by the ancient cultures, and we can see the symbol hinted at in other places of scripture, such as Numbers 16, 46-48. So Moses said to Aaron, Take the fire holder and put fire in it from the altar and lay incense on it, and go and hurry to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from Hashem, the plague has begun. And Aaron took it as Moses commanded, and ran out into the midst of the assembly, and saw that the plague had begun among the people. And he laid on the incense, and made atonement for the people, and stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Aaron used incense while participating in an act of intercession on behalf of the people of God. Or how about Isaiah 1, 13-15? Stop bringing futile offerings. Incense. It is an abomination to me. New moons, Sabbaths, the calling of gatherings. I am unable to bear unrighteousness and assembly. My being hates your new moons and your appointed times. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I do not hear. Your hands have become filled with blood. In that passage, we see a chiastic pattern there. It compares the incense with the prayers at the beginning and the end, the new moons and the Moedim or Sabbaths, and then in the main point is the unrighteousness and assembly being unbearable to Hashem. And when seen in this light, prayer and incense, they're used as these parallel ideas that surround that center point. How about Luke chapter 1, verses 10 through 13? And the entire crowd of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And the messenger of Hashem appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the messenger said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elisheva, or Elizabeth, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yochanan, or John. Prayer and incense, they're being offered at the same time, and the angel responds to a prayer request during the burning of incense. Now, this is a symbol that's been recognized for ages, and it finds its home in Scripture throughout. Incense and prayer, the physical symbol of communication, which is the foundation of any relationship, and the tabernacle as a whole is itself a pattern for relationship, both from man to God and from God to man. Well, then it should not surprise us that the tabernacle provides a pattern for prayer before God. The things that prayer should include and the attitudes with which prayer should be offered to a holy God. And when we examine scripture, we discover that this is in fact the case. 
there is a pattern of approach before God that is represented in the articles of the tabernacle. We can see the beginning of this in several psalms. Uh, Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Or Psalm 95, 2. Let us come before his face with thanksgiving. Let us raise a shout to him with song. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Come before the presence with songs of praise and thanksgiving. This is the first attitude that we should have as we come before Hashem. Thanksgiving and praise. So the altar of incense contains within it a pattern of prayer. But what exactly is prayer? Let's start there. Well, the English word pray dates back to around the year 1300, and it's derived from a Latin word, tricare, which means to ask earnestly, to beg, or to entreat. Early examples of this phrase, such as, I pray you, may be found throughout 15th century English literature, such as Shakespeare, with the meaning of, I ask you, or please, if you will. And many times, that's the only way in which we approach God. Hey, God, I have a request to make of you. I need something from you. But a relationship that's based solely on the requests of need from one party to the other is not a healthy relationship. A relationship must be based on more than need. And what kind of relationship has Exodus cast as the bond between God and man? It's as a husband to his bride. He is the husband, and the people are his bride. And if we look to Paul regarding this relationship, we find something that tells us how we should approach God. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Messiah also did love the church and gave himself for it. This is how God acts in regards to his bride. But if we continue on just a bit further, we read in verse 33, However, you too, everyone, let each one love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she fears her husband. This is how we are to act towards God. We are to fear him. And this word used for fear in the Greek, it means in this case, it might be best summed up as respect. And that's how we're to approach God. First, we give him honor and we give respect to our king. Now, the Bible contains some 222 prayers throughout it, but not all of them are entire prayers, but rather just a summation of prayers that were being said. But if we examine some of the long-form prayers recorded in the Bible, we'll find that this is how nearly all of them begin. First Samuel 2, 1-2 And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Hashem. My horn has been high in Hashem. My mouth is opened wide over my enemies, for I have rejoiced in your salvation. There is no one holy like Hashem. There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. Or Second Samuel 7, 18-23 and King David went in and sat before Hashem, and he said, Who am I, O Master Hashem, and what is my house, that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small matter in your eyes, O Master Hashem. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the Torah of man, O Master Hashem? And what more does David say to you? For you, Master Hashem, know your servant. Because of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to make it known to your servant. He begins with humility, 
But then he continues on. You are great indeed, O Master Hashem, for there is none like you, and there is no God but you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to ransom for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do you greatness and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you ransomed for yourself out of Egypt, from the nations and their gods? Or Daniel, chapter 9, verse 4. And I prayed to Hashem my God, and made confession, I said, O Hashem, great and awesome God, guarding the covenant and the loving kindness to those who love him and to those who guard his commands. Or Nehemiah 1, verse 5. And I said, I pray, Hashem, Elohim of the heavens, a great and awesome God, guarding the loving kindness of those who love you and those guarding your commands. Or Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. Then the Levites, Yeshua and Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherevia, Chodiah, Shevanya, and Petachiah said, Rise and bless Hashem your God forever and ever, and let them bless your honored name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are Hashem, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of the heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that are in it, the seas and all that are in them, and you give life to them all and the host of the heavens are bowing themselves to you. Praise is the standard way of opening a prayer, whether asking for something such as Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 1, or offering thanksgiving such as Hannah in 1 Samuel or David in 2 Samuel, or simply praising God as the priests were doing in Nehemiah 9. But as we trace a course through the tabernacle, once entry has been made through praise and thanksgiving, Then comes the altar of burnt sacrifice. Now, the idea of thanksgiving and praise, they cover the first two ideals of sacrifice, and we'll explore them in Leviticus. Those are the Ola and the Shlamim offerings. The Ola is an act of praise out of awe and fear. The Shlamim is an act of peace, or thanksgiving, or fellowship with God. And so those are both covered in those first two sacrifices. But the altar of burnt sacrifice itself in the realm of prayer encompasses the idea of confession and repentance of sin, as demonstrated through the chata'at, or sin sacrifice, or the asham, or the guilt sacrifice, which we will also talk about when we get to Leviticus. The acceptance of the blood of Messiah for the remission of our sins and the purification of our lives. 1 John 1, 7-9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Yeshua the Messiah, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are misleading ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is trustworthy and righteous to forgive us the sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood, that of the renewed covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or Ephesians 1, 7 in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespass according to the riches of his grace. And without confession and the anointing sacrifice, no one goes any further in a relationship with God. John 14.6, Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The implication there being that no one comes to the Father except through the sacrifice that I am going to make, and a putting on of my image. 
Or we could look to Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, who says, So in every way he had made himself like his brothers, in order to become a compassionate and trustworthy high priest in matters related to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For in what he had suffered, himself being tried, he is able to help those who are tried. And if we read on in the prayers of Daniel and Nehemiah that we read the openings of earlier, this is the next step that they take in their continued prayers of request for the fulfillment of a promise. Continuing on with the prayer in Daniel, chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, says, We have sinned and did crookedness and did wrong and rebelled to turn aside from your commands and from your judgments. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our heads and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Hashem, to you is the righteousness and to us is the shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel those near and those far off in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of their trespass with which they have trespassed against you. Or continuing on in the prayer from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night for the children of Israel your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not guarded the commands nor the laws nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Confession of wrongdoing should be a regular part of our prayer life. Next, as we continue on in the tabernacle, we come to the bronze laver, another item that is disconnected from the rest of the instructions, but for a different reason, which we'll discuss next week. And the laver reminds us that Once we have accepted and been covered in the sacrifice of Yeshua, we have been washed clean, and the shame and the guilt that is inherently connected to the recognition of sins is no longer ours. And the accusations of the enemy, they can no longer find a place in our lives. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 through 8. And the Master Hashem helps me, therefore I shall not be humiliated. So I have set my face like flint, and I know that I am not put to shame. Near is he who declares me right. Who would contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Or Romans 9.33 As it has been written, See, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock that makes her fall, and everyone who is believing on him shall not be put to shame. First Peter 4.16 But if one suffers being a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him honor God in this manner. Or 1 John three nineteen through 21 And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall set our hearts at rest before him. That if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and knows all. Beloved ones, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness towards God. And with this freedom from shame and guilt and the atoning death of the Lamb on our behalf, we have the right to enter into the holy place of God and to enter into community with him. And we continue on entering into the holy place, passing through the veil that was torn at the crucifixion. And in this place, we can begin to make requests of God. And those requests take on three forms that we find represented in the three articles of this place. So let's go through these one by one. The first item in the holy place is the table of showbread. The showbread representing physical sustenance that we need to live but also representing God's word being active in our lives. Now, there's something important contained here, because 
I couldn't find a single example of a prayer in scripture where a person prays for riches or wealth or some form of personal advancement. Now, there might be a single exception to this prayer in the prayer of Jabez recorded in 1 Chronicles 4.10, where he prays to have his borders increased. But this is usually seen as being a request for God to fulfill the promises that he had made of giving Israel the land that he had promised. A request for God to be faithful, not for personal increase. Now, there are other examples of people who are in shame of praying for return of their honor, but not a single example of God, increase my bank account or give me a good paying job so that I don't have to worry, or God, give me money. Rather, every prayer for physical items is always steeped in the idea of, God, give me enough to make it through the day. Instead of wealth and riches, the prayers of Scripture are for deliverance from evildoers, victory over enemies, healing for afflictions, general blessings, or for a child or an heir. This is the form that biblical prayer takes on when it comes to physical needs. And if we examine scripture, we find that the promise is made from one end to the other, that the daily physical needs of the children of God will be met. We need not stress over these things, although we often do. Stressing over physical needs, it only demonstrates a lack of faith. It's no different than Israel's testing God at Massah. Your fathers tried me. They proved me, though they had seen my work. Requests for more than daily bread is a request to not need God active in your life day by day. Will he provide? Yes. Does he often provide far more than we need for a single day? Yes. Especially in modern America. Yes. But for the majority of the world and for the majority of history, this was all that they could hope for. Just enough for today. In the table of showbread, it represents more than just simple physical needs. The table represents a request for God to reveal his word and his will in our lives. Ephesians 3, 4-5 through 5 says, In reading this, then, you are able to understand my insight into the secret of Messiah, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Or 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10 through 10. But as it has been written, eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all matters, even the depths of God. And we discover that in this request for God's word and will to be revealed, we discover a very real connection to the menorah. For what is it that the menorah represents? The menorah represents the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God. For as both Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 says, it is the Spirit that reveals the hidden things of God to us. But the menorah covers so much ground as we are specifically commanded to pray for the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen, If you then, being wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father from heaven give the Holy Spirit to those asking him? Or Acts 5.32, And we are his witnesses to this matter, and also to the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. God gives his Spirit to those who are asking, according to Yeshua and Luke, and is given to those who obey him, according to Luke in Acts. But the Spirit is a gift to all who are saved. Ephesians 1.13, In whom you also, having heard the word of truth, 
the good news of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So for those of us who are saved, we should not necessarily be praying to receive the Spirit, but rather we should pray for the Spirit's presence to be increased in us. For the revelation of our spiritual gifts and the opportunity to exercise our Spirit-given gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-11 And concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not wish you to be ignorant. You know that you were nations led away to the dumb idols, even as you might be led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Yeshua is a curse, and no one is able to say that Yeshua is master except by the Holy Spirit. And there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of services, but the same Master. And there are different kinds of workings, but it is the same God who is working all in all. And to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for profiting. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the Spirit, and to another operations of powers, and to another prophecy, and to another discerning of spirits, and to another kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit work all these, distributing to each one individually as he intends. We should pray and ask for the Spirit to reveal to us what we should pray for as well. Romans eight twenty six to 27 And in the same way the Spirit does help us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our case for us with groanings unutterable. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the Holy Ones according to God. And we should take time to sit silently and listen for guidance from the Spirit. Can you have a conversation if it's just one way? No. If you're speaking to someone, stop and allow them to speak back. Especially if our prayer is for guidance, if we're asking God to show us a way. For to ask for guidance from God and then to not wait for an answer is to pray without the expectation of receiving. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20 through 21. Though Hashem gave you bread of adversity and water of affliction, your teacher shall no longer be hid. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears hear the word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or whenever you turn to the left. Or Romans 8.14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the final piece in the holy place is the altar of incense itself, the symbol of prayer in general. But incense also represents a specific kind of prayer. We read of it once already in the book of Numbers. It was Aaron with incense who stood in the gap between the living and the dead. In this case, incense is a picture of intercession being made by God on behalf of his people. We discover throughout scripture that this is a role that we are to take up, especially as we pick up our role as priests and especially for our fellow brothers and sisters in Messiah. 1 Samuel 7, 5-6 And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and let me pray to Hashem for you. And they gathered it to Mitzpah, and drew water, and poured it out before Hashem. And they fasted that day, and said there, We have sinned against Hashem. And Samuel rightly ruled the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Or Joel two seventeen, Let the priests, servants of Hashem, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare your people, O Hashem, and do not give your inheritance to reproach for the nations to rule over them. 
Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Or James 5, 14-16 Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the assembly, and let them pray over him, having anointed him with oil in the name of the Master. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick, and the Master shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he shall be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another so that you are healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous one accomplishes much. Or Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens, and so complete the Torah of the Messiah. We are to intercede for our brothers and sisters. We are to make requests to God on their behalf. But the call to intercession does not end there. We are specifically told to pray for those outside of the community. Job 42, 8-9 says, And now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up an ascending offering for yourselves. And let my servant Job pray for you, for I accept him, lest I punish you, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as did my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuchite and Sophar the Amathite went and did as Hashem commanded them. And Hashem accepted the face of Job. Or Matthew 5, 44-47 But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those cursing you. Do good to those hating you and pray for those insulting you and persecuting you so that you become sons of their Father in the heavens. Because he makes his sun rise on the wicked and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those loving you, what reward have you? Are the tax collectors not doing the same too? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Are the tax collectors not doing so too? And so we see we are to pray for both believers and unbelievers, but there is one other type of person that we are specifically told to pray for and to make intercession for, and that is the country that we find ourselves living in, and that country is leaders. Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, And seek the peace of the city where I have exiled you, and pray to Hashem for it, for in its peace you have peace. Or our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and for all those who are in authority, in order that we lead a calm and peaceful life in all reverence and seriousness. And then finally, we come to the Ark of the Witness, the place of being in the presence of God. And it is here that we pray to God to search our heart for anything that we may have missed previously. Psalm 139, 1-4 says, O Hashem, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You sift my path and my lying down and know well all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but see, O Hashem, you know it all. And then continuing on in verses 23-24, through the same chapter. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if an idolatrous way is in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and working and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting through even to the dividing of being and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It is here that we find our own smallness next to his vast, glorious presence. And all we can do is fall before him in humility. Second Chronicles 7.14 And my people upon whom my name is called, they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their evil ways. Then I shall hear from the heavens and forgive their sin and heal their land. Or James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Master, and he shall lift you up. First Peter 5.6, Humble yourselves then under the mighty hand of God, so that he exalts you in due time. And you can go on and on with that theme throughout Scripture. And finally, it's here, in the midst of whatever you face in life, that you can find rest and peace in the presence of the Almighty. Psalm 46.10, Be still. And know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. Or Exodus 33:14, And he said, My presence does go, and I shall give you rest. Or Matthew 11, 28-30, says, Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I shall give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your beings, for my yoke is gentle and my burden is light. And that is prayer modeled in the tabernacle. Oh, wonderful, you might say. But we have a model for prayer. It was given to us by our Messiah. Why do we need another? Well, can anyone out there say two witnesses? Two witnesses are a very important thing in Scripture, because it's without two witnesses, you cannot establish a matter. Well, so let's look at the Lord's Prayer as it's come to be called, and let's see if we can identify the ways that this prayer correlates to the tabernacle. So we find the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9-13. through 13. And it says, This then is the way that you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, let your name be holy, let your kingdom come and your desire be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is prayer and thanksgiving, entering into the tabernacle. Give us today our daily bread. That's the table of showbread. Forgive us our debts. It's the altar of sacrifice. As we forgive our debtors. That's the cleansing of the bronze labor. And do not lead us into trial. The menorah being the light that guides our path. But deliver us from the wicked one. The altar of incense. A prayer of intercession or asking for something from God. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the honor forever. Amen. Now that last part, probably not part of the original prayer that was uh, written originally by the author of Matthew, something that was maybe added in later by another scribe, but it represents resting in the Holy of Holies. Every part of the tabernacle is represented in the Lord's Prayer. Every single piece of furniture that we've discussed today is represented in the Lord's Prayer. Now, two witnesses, one directly from the mouth of our Messiah and the other from the mind of Hashem, encoded in the blueprints and service rituals. They give us the core of what it is that we need to focus on. And so it is with prayer being such an important part of our relationship with Hashem, because without communication, you can't have relationship. Without prayer being part of your life, you cannot truly claim to Dereshchai. You cannot seek life without relationship with the God of life. You must pray. We all must pray. And in these instructions for the altar of incense, we read that it should be done twice a day, in the morning and the evening. At a minimum, let's try to engage and converse with God twice a day. Shalom. 
Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.